0: Hey guys, if you like Code Switch, then you should probably download NPR One to hear more of us. NPR One finds you the best from public radio and beyond. There are surprising interviews, your favorite podcast, and now there's an easy way to listen to your favorite station live. NPR One is ready to make commuting, cleaning the house, or alone time even better. Find NPR One on your app store.
1: What's good, y'all? So, Code Switch is going on a field trip today, but first, we wanted to just let you know that one of our guests does use some strong language when he talks about race. And it's language that might make some folks uncomfortable. All right? Cool.
2: What's
1: good, y'all? You're listening to Code Switch and the sound of thousands of writers and editors and other movers and shakers in the publishing industry. I'm Gene Demby here at the Association of Writers and Writing Programs Conference in Washington, D.C., with my guest host this week, this Kat Chow. Hey, Gene. Where are we, Kat? Can you just describe where we are and what we're saying?
0: We are in this exhibition hall, which is packed with tables of people from these independent presses, writer programs, publishing mm-hmm. houses, and we're here because we wanted to talk to people about the pressures in the publishing world that are put specifically on writers and editors of color.
1: Right, especially right now. We actually ambushed one of them. Oh, hi. Hey, man. Gene from NPR. Errol McDonald. He's a very big deal. Such a big deal. Yeah, he's edited James Baldwin, Salman Rushdie, and a few Nobel laureates like Toni Morrison to get the (laughs) sense of the kind of person we're dealing with right now. Uh, He's an executive at Penguin Random House, and because you can't see him, I have to say he's a really dope dresser. He has a nice little pocket square.
3: Um,
1: I asked him about diversity in publishing, but he was skeptical about that word itself. For what is diversity
4: being achieved, and for whom? Okay who is doing the inclusion, Mm -hmm. and what am I being included in, (laughs) okay? Mm -hmm. And whoever said I was marginal, (laughs) (laughs) and why should I accept that definition of myself, Mm -hmm. okay? Mm -hmm. So when you accept words like marginalized or, you know, inclusion or diversity, you need to stand back and ask yourself,
5: who.
1: Are those things in service of and for what? McDonald's told me that this conversation about race and publishing comes in waves. It happens over and over again. People forget that in the 60s
4: and 70s, there were bestsellers with titles like The Nigger Bible, huh. Nigger, <laughs> right. um, Dick Gregory's Autobiography, mm-hmm. um, Soul on Ice. Mm-hmm. Huge bestsellers because those books reflected what was going on in the culture and the society at the same time. Um, that 's happening again, and one senses that, after decades of the American book buying public not being interested
1: in books by or about blacks, all of a sudden they 're on and McDonald kind of reminded me of the Cheshire Cat, you know what I mean he was very smooth, you know, and he's very, sl- had a slinky smile. just, you know, like he had all this information that he was like keeping to himself. It was a really interesting cat.
0: And what McDonald is saying is something we've seen a lot right here. I've heard this conference described as like the Comic-Con for writers, so WriterCon. And there are these panels about refugee literature, racism, and MFA programs. And we're gonna take you to one after the break.
1: Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Blue Apron. Blue Apron partners with sustainable farms, fisheries, and ranchers to bring you all the ingredients you need to create incredible home-cooked meals. Ingredients come paired with an easy-to-follow recipe card, delivered to your door weekly in a refrigerated box. Rediscover how fun cooking can be while enjoying specialty ingredients and exploring new flavors and cuisines. Get your first three Blue Apron meals free, plus free shipping, by visiting blueapron.com slash codeswitch.
0: I'm Linda Holmes from NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast. It's Oscar season, and we're here to help you sort through the nominees, separate the best from the rest, and maybe even dominate your Oscar pool. Don't show up on the red carpet unprepared. Find Pop Culture Happy Hour on the NPR One app or at npr.org podcasts
1: all right y'all we're back and we're back at the big association of writers and writing programs conference in dc and we're at this panel called it's a mouthful so i apologize the written orality of hip-hop lyricism
0: respect the sex to fly over you can
1: never take light it's like bringing a knife to a gunfight
0: a guy named Jonah Mixon Webster was speaking, and he's this poet from Flint, Michigan, and now he's getting his Ph.D. in paracolonial poetics at Illinois State. And his lecture, it was about the power of ad libs in hip-hop.
1: Those glancing quips that peek through the moment of pause between a lyricist bars. The little phrases echoing from the background, the ones you find yourself waiting to chant along with, or maybe you can't get it out of your head already, and before long, you are a clone of Little John. What? <clears throat> <laughs> and quickly, you find a new territory for your voice to occupy. Yeah! <laughs> and you notice that you and many others have become captivated by the gravitational energy of an ad-libs resonance. Okay! Okay! And you ain't make it out the 90s without DMX making you want to go,
3: what? Uh,
0: Come on. (laughs) And then we ran into someone Gene knows. Gene, hello. (laughs) (laughs) And that's Angela Flournoy, and she's this novelist I've really wanted to talk to. Her first book, it was The Turner House, and it was a finalist for the National Book Awards. And it follows this family in Detroit, and it was amazing.
1: Hi, Angela.
5: So good to see you.
0: So, Angela. We're hearing some talk here at this conference about the responsibility of writers and poets and how they might be able to shift people's outlooks in this political climate. And so, has a book ever changed your politics?
5: Oh, yeah. Starting with, like, sixth grade, I read Upton Sinclair's The Jungle, and I was just like, I am never eating a marshmallow again. And um, I slowly but surely just, like, stopped eating most meat. I don't know. It happens, like, in small ways just all the time and it's not necessarily like it changes my political stance, but one thing fiction can do, like reading um Juno Diaz's novel, um, Brief Wonders and Life of Oscar Wilde, before moving to New York and sort of understanding from his characters only, like the very specific relationship between like blackness and like Dominicanness and like how it's fraught, etc., I think helps me just be able to navigate neighborhoods and interactions.
0: Angela, how
5: much pressure do you
0: feel about creating work that responds to political turmoil?
5: For writers like myself, I feel like any writer that's writing about a, air quote, marginalized community, um, we were already doing it. It might be that other people suddenly see more resonance or sort of urgency in reading what we were writing. One thing that was really sobering for me is I just happened to take a trip to South Carolina, and there's a a lot of black students who came up to me um, at the school I was reading at, and they were telling me that, you know, in a lot of ways they were already living in Trump's America. They've always lived in Trump's America. (laughs) And so have, you know, their ancestors, their parents, their grandparents, and they've still found a way to, like, create art and, like, find worth in themselves and, like, resist. And so, if anything, just Being able to write about joyful black and brown and queer people is resistance.
1: And right here in this big exhibition hall that we're standing in, there was protests.
0: Yeah, like a hundred or so people just linking up arms and chanting while we were talking to this other novelist, Alexander Chi, And he's a Korean-American writer who says he's been to this conference more times than he can even count. Right. And Gene, I asked him what he thought about this speech by the writer Roxanne Gay that I've been thinking about. And in it, Gay says she's tired of always having to be that diversity advocate at conferences like this one?
6: If I could have high-fived her through the internet, I would have. You know, like, I think we're all frustrated with the way in which diversity panels end up becoming like, the only way that you're presented. You know, I remember last spring, an organization asked me to read for them, for my new novel, and when we discussed how, like, what the Q&A would be about, they wanted to talk about diversity, and I said absolutely not. I will not. I will not. It's not I said, I've been working on this novel for 14 years, and we're going to talk about the damn novel. <laughs> like, having the conversation over and over again ends up feeling like we're stuck in a Freudian repetition cycle where everyone forgets everything that you say, even as you say it, and then you just end up the next year in the same damn diversity panel.
0: Alexander said he's had some experiences that have made him skeptical of how sincere people are when it comes to these issues.
6: People who want me involved because they see that people are excited about my work and have me on the masthead but forget to invite me to the party. Like, that literally just happened. (laughs) Are you going to go? No. (laughs) And And I, you know, I ran into this person, yeah, and I just, I said, what is wrong with you? (laughs) Because that's all you can say to that.
0: A writer at a loss for words.
1: So among the many, many genres uh, of uh, writing which you traffic, one of them is erotica. Our team, we were sort of talking about the idea of erotica um, as a utopian space, as a space of possibility, um, but also a political space, and we were hoping you could sort of speak to that.
6: I think that the focus on pleasure is political. Like, so much of the political struggles we're in right now are actually people just kind of asking to be allowed to live and not be killed. Like, health insurance is about that. Police reform is about that. Um, Voting rights are about that. It's like, don't kill me, basically, is what so much of this comes down to. Something like pleasure can get lost in a political conversation that's dominated by such extremes. You know, I've written Erotica, and I think... Uh, I, I never think of it as utopian exactly. I guess I would think of it as maybe more along the lines of idealism. You know, writing for the world you want to exist, maybe more than uh, any specific ideal version of it. I mean, pleasure has a new urgency, uh, and I think a new... Radical quality, certainly. So I don't know if I think of it as utopian as much as I think of it as revolutionary.
1: Are we ready? We better get going. Which comes first, activism or artist? That was the name of a panel where we heard from a guy named Martin Espada.
3: Am I a Puerto Rican poet or a poet? Am I first an activist or an artist?
1: Yeah, as you could guess, it's kind of all of the above all at the same time. And Espada talked about what that feeling is like right now.
3: We live in an age of hyper euphemism from alt-right to alternative facts. The makers of these phrases bleed language of its meaning. They drain the blood from words. Poets can reconcile language with meaning. We can put the blood back in the words. Keep in mind that our language is powerful precisely because it is not the language of
0: power. And Gene, I just want to say, he's won a National Book Award, a Pushcart Prize. He was nominated for a Pulitzer. And he's a really big deal in the poetry world, or what he called in his speech, the Republic of Poetry.
3: The Republic of Poetry has no borders. In this republic, no human being is illegal. In this republic, no one is thrown on the other side of the wall after building the wall. Every time the wall goes up, we tear it down. Poetry humanizes in the face of dehumanization, rebutting the presidential rhetoric of hate and fear. And as you can hear, you know, Espada was
1: saying all this with his whole body. There's a lot of gesticulation. So physical. Yeah. And he's a very established figure in the poetry world. But on that same panel, we heard from someone else who is newer to that aforementioned republic of poetry. Latina Osman was born in Somalia. She was raised in Ohio. She's an educator, too. And Kat, Osman told me that she came to this conference, AWP, because, in her words, it airs out academic discussions. It makes these conversations public.
2: This is a place where, if used with a clear intention where you can open conversation to um, a wider audience and to connect with other types of thinkers, because it's not always um, writers okay, so or people from writing programs that are here, it's other types of thinkers and scholars who are trying to diversify their thinking.
1: So Kat, I asked Osman that question we've been closing out our podcast with over the last couple of weeks.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: What are you listening to right now that's giving you life?
2: I'm listening to a lot of most Def right now. Um uh, Black on both sides especially.
4: That cool refreshing drink. Try with your friends. New World Water make tide rise high. Come in land and make your house go by. Fools done upset the old man river. Made him carry slave ships and fed him dead. It's, it's
2: I mean that New World Water could be so relevant to this moment with the Dakota pipeline. Um yeah, or flint for sure. Yeah. Um it's just You know, and also the Somali coastline, right? There'll be some person that comes in the machine and just sucks up all the sand and leaves. It's like, who was that? What country did they come from? Why did they come to this beach?
1: I love that song so much.
0: Yeah, and that point she makes, that's that's why everyone came here.
1: Yeah, all these poets and these novelists and these people from these tiny, tiny presses, they, they want to create work that it's not just about this current political moment that we're in and we're also obsessed with but that might also be useful in helping us get our minds around what the hell is happening right now.
0: And some of the people we talked to said that they found this comfort of being in a physical space with other people who also live in their minds Mm -hmm. that there was something really powerful about being with other writers and editors of color so that they could say to each other I see you.
1: That's it for this week. Kat, thank you for coming down from New York to rock with us.
0: Yeah, thank you.
1: As always, we're interested in hearing from you. You can holler at us at codeswitch at npr.org or on Twitter at nprcodeswitch. Our podcast this week was edited and produced by Sammy Yenigan and Netta Ullaby.
0: And shout-outs, as always, to our teammates Adrian Florido, Leah Danella, Karen Grigsby-Bates, Shereen Marisol Meraji, and George Encinas.
1: Our senior supervising editor is Jaleka Lantigua-Williams. All right, y'all, we're back next week.
0: Oh, thanks. We're getting kicked out. (laughs)
1: Yeah, they're kicking us out. We'll see you all next week. Be easy.
0: Later.